Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We're so excited that you've joined us today. Melissa has an interesting case for us. It's one that I'm going to put a trigger warning in for today. Ooh, we don't do that often. We don't. But today we're going to be talking about the senseless death of a beautiful five-year-old girl. Oh, no. Yeah. Those ones are always the hardest. This dirtbag that we're going to talk about today is one I hadn't heard about, but his crimes are so awful that I'm shocked it wasn't more publicized. This dirtbag committed an atrocious act so deplorable, and then he claimed he couldn't even remember doing it, let alone give a reason why he did it. Oh, that's going to be infuriating. He took the life of Precious Whitfield, and talking about a child's death is always a little bit harder. Yeah, that definitely warrants a trigger warning. So listeners, if it's too difficult, feel free to skip this episode and we'll catch back with you next week. For sure. You have to do what's best for you. Everyone knows their limits of what they can handle each day. But if you're ready for this wild ride, let's get into it. Because the crimes against this absolute angel make Eric Glenn Lane one of the worst kinds of dirtbags. I think you have to be one of the worst to harm a child. Absolutely. Eric was born on June 7, 1971, and I believe he was the third of four children. And until he was in his preteens, he was raised predominantly by his father, William Herman Lane, who went by Pete for most people. There weren't any substantiated reports that I could find about his mother's involvement in his life. I don't know if she left early in the young boy's life or had passed away, but there is no mention of her past his early years. Oh, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. It can be traumatic to lose your mother figure. Right, or to grow up without one at all. There would be someone that filled that mothering role for him, though. It would be Joan Sutton that played the mothering role in his life, but she wouldn't come into his life until his early teens when she became his father's second wife. To neighbors looking in, the blended family appeared normal and were described as nice people. Eric was a self-proclaimed country boy growing up in Goldsboro, North Carolina, preferring the outdoors to school. Eric struggled in school and would later be diagnosed with both learning and expressive language disorders. At the highest tested level, his reading ability would only be that of a third grader. Ooh. And this was the highest testing score. Many of the others would score well below, some even in the kindergarten range. Really? Mm -hmm. As a teenager? As an adult. Wow. Academics weren't his thing, and he would eventually drop out of school in just grade eight. Aw. Shortly after dropping out of school, Eric left home. Living on his own, with no real purpose in life, Eric began to drink excessively, and he was a violent drunk, almost like the alcohol encouraged him to exert dominance in a world where he had always felt really small. The lack of supervision, the alcohol, and the rage were not great combinations. They never are. No, they're not. But Eric tried to find a way in life. Despite his lack of formal education and drinking problems, Eric would eventually settle into a career and make a living in the electrical field working for his family's company, Lane Electric. He would also marry a young woman from his hometown, Jenny, and have a child. The couple had a tumultuous relationship, and Eric was physically and sexually abusive towards his wife. No way. Mm Mm-hmm. And this often coincided with his drinking. Oh, it's so terrible. And you know what? A lot of people don't believe that a spouse can sexually assault another spouse because you're married. And that is absolutely not the case. It's not something that's talked about a lot at all. No, it's not. And it should be talked about more. Sexual abuse can happen in a marriage relationship. Yes. This marriage relationship was not a good environment. And Jenny eventually found the courage to leave the relationship. But Eric was not too happy about his wife leaving. On September 29th, 1998, he grabbed Jenny at a convenience store and forced her into his vehicle. So he kidnaps her. Uh Uh-huh. Once inside the vehicle, he restrained her and drove her to a wooded area, keeping her there for some time, threatening her with a knife. What? Mm Mm-hmm. And then, under threat, he forced her to perform sexual acts. You're kidding. 
I'm sorry, Eric, but that is not the way to get a woman to come back to you. Not at all. How traumatic for her and just proving that much more that she needed to get as far away as possible from this wretched man. I can't imagine doing that to someone that you love. Or at least proclaim to love. That's true. Or we're in a relationship with. Right. But Eric, a lot of the time, blamed all of his decision making on alcohol. Yeah, but you're choosing to drink the alcohol and you know that you're a dirtbag when you're drinking it. So I don't buy that. Sorry. Nope. Return. We have had this discussion many times about being under the influence of substances that you chose to take. Right. Therefore, you should be held accountable. Absolutely. Eric would eventually release Jenny and she would report him to the police and press charges. Good. Which is quite impressive for her. But he would be sentenced to only 15 days in jail for the felonous restraint on October 11th, 1999. He was put on supervised probation for 36 months following just those 15 days in jail and fined $500. Are you kidding me? No, I don't understand this sentence at all. But I think it might go back to that, well, they were married, how could he actually force her into sexual acts and restrain her against her will. Yeah, you literally threw her in a car and tied her up and held her hostage while you treated her like a sex slave. Yeah, he had kidnapped her and sexually assaulted her. This makes me so crazy. And still today, these stupid dirtbags are given such light sentences when it comes to sexual assaults in comparison to other crimes. Oh, it's so true. We have seen others do far less and get far worse sentences. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but you're doing less harm when you write a fraud check than when you destroy a person's life with sexual assault. Yeah. It was a meager slap on the wrist. And unfortunately, the only lesson that Eric would take from it was that the next time he would do such a thing, not to leave a witness. Oh, no. Over the next three years, Eric displayed some odd behavior. One neighbor said that Eric would sometimes go into his backyard where he lived alone with the exception of occasionally caring for his son and just randomly fire his pistol in the air three times. I forgot about the son. Can you imagine your ex-husband does this to you and then you have to let him have visitations with your son? No. That would be awful. Yeah. And especially with him getting such a light sentence, it's teaching him that, oh, I can go ahead and do this type of thing. I'm not going to be held accountable. That's what happens when you give slap on the wrists. Yeah. That must have been torturous for her dropping her son off there. Mm Mm-hmm. But until that point, there was nobody that feared for the safety of children around Eric. And he would just shoot this gun off into the air with his son close by? Well, it didn't say that his son would be close by. He would just randomly go out into his backyard where all of his son's playthings were, like a swing set and things like that, and just shoot randomly into the air. Eric's run-ins with the law would become more and more frequent. On July 4th, 2001, he was charged with resisting an officer and assaulting a court official. What? Mm -hmm. He was brought into court to answer other charges, and he left with even more charges than he came there with. Wow. Those type of people are so scary when they don't care who's standing in front of them. You're not going to stop me. They just have no regard for anybody's authority. No. Eric's drinking would increase. He would later say that he drank as much as two cases of beer a day, plus some scotch. Ooh. And that he drank, quote, just enough alcohol to prevent himself from going crazy or into withdrawal. Otherwise, he would be, quote, sick, shaking, very anxious, and miserable. So he is a hardcore addict if he needs that much alcohol just to keep the edge off. Yeah, he is an alcoholic to the extreme. In December of 2001, he was convicted of driving while under the influence, big surprise, and he had his driver's license suspended and once again was put on probation. He was also fined for writing bad checks at the same time. Without a license, he took to commuting to work on a scooter. I'm surprised. I would have thought he would have just kept driving regardless. I thought the same thing. I was surprised that he didn't just disregard the authority. It was on Friday, May 17th, while still on probation, that Eric returned home from work on his scooter around 3.30 and started to drink. 
It was Friday, and he was going to enjoy the sunshine, so he laid out in front of his own son's swing set in the backyard with his shirt off. That's when two neighborhood children came by and asked if they could play on the swing set. Mm. And was his son with him at the time, or they just randomly showed up and asked if they could play? No, his son wasn't in his care at this time. These two children just saw the swing set in the backyard, and they wanted to play on it. Oh, no. Five-year-old Precious Whitfield was one of those children. Her mother, Michelle, had dropped her and her two younger siblings off at her step-grandmother's house around 4 or 45. Michelle worked evenings and had entrusted Gladys Johnson and her two sons to watch over the children. That evening, when the children arrived, Gladys was not home quite yet because she had stopped off on her way home to pick up a few things to make dinner. It wasn't a big deal because her sons were there to care for the children. Her youngest son, Precious's step-uncle, watched over the children, overseeing Precious do her homework that she had brought home from kindergarten that day, before he allowed her to go out and play with her neighborhood friend, Michael. And the other two kids are smaller, so they stayed at home and she was allowed to go out because she was five. Yes. And they're just playing in the neighbor's driveway, riding their bikes up and down. Okay, so really close. Mm-hmm. But it was while Michael and Precious were riding their bikes in Michael's driveway that they spotted the swing set in Eric's backyard and asked if they could play on it. Oh, so he was a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It's always so sad to me when it's a neighbor because you're supposed to be the safest at your home. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think we would be shocked. If we knew who some of our neighbors were. You're probably right. Now all of our listeners are going to be checking out on their neighbors. Sometimes you have to. (laughs) Sometimes that nice guy down the street is not actually a nice guy. Well, this guy that lived alone was not a nice guy. Eric had no problem with the kids coming over and even agreed to push them on the swings for a little bit. Precious attended Northeast Elementary School and was a bright and friendly child who was kind to everyone. And she had many friends because of this. She was also an animal lover, as most five-year-olds are. So when Eric mentioned that he had a goldfish and eels, she just had to see them. Oh, no. And I just have to say, who has eels? Yeah, that's not a common thing for someone to have in their home. It's not, but I think I would be intrigued enough to want to see them. Well, especially when you're five. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just such an exotic thing to see, right? Yeah. As a grown woman, what would it take for you to go inside someone's house to see? What kind of pet would I want to see? Or just anything in general. (laughs) Diamonds. (laughs) Don't fall for that. (laughs) Diamonds couldn't get me in someone's house. No? What could get you in someone's house? I don't know. Hmm. A chocolate fountain. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate. (laughs) But for Precious, eels were an attraction. She wanted to see them. Both she and Michael did. While the children were in the house, Eric offered them a pop, and once they finished with their drink, the two headed back outside to play on the swing set until it was time for Michael to go home for supper. Around 6.30, when Michael's mom told Precious it was time for her to go home too for her supper, she returned to the red and white bicycle that she had borrowed and pedaled away. She never made it back to her grandmother's house. Really? Right next door. So the other mom saw her pedaling her bike home, but she didn't get there? Yeah. When Precious hadn't returned by seven, Gladys sent her youngest son out looking for her. He went to Michael's house and learned that she had been there, but that she had left a short 30 minutes before. The search expanded to the neighborhood and adjacent houses, but Precious had vanished. Michelle received the call that Precious was missing and the family convened to search again. And I cannot imagine the panic searching for their child. No, I'm feeling a bit of panic just hearing this. I cannot even fathom what you would go through as a family member of this child. No. Have you ever lost one of your kids like in the shopping center? Yes. And your heart is just pounding. Oh, yeah. Your mind is racing. You can hardly think straight. You're breathing hard. And you're just frantic. Right. And you knew the last time you saw them. But for Precious's family, especially for her mom, she had been at work. And so she had no way of tracking where she had been seen last. Right. And it's such a feeling of desperation. Mm -hmm. And I've only ever lost one of my children for a moment or two like that in the store. And so I cannot even imagine what that would feel like for an extended period of time. No, for hours and hours searching for her and not being able to find her. Oh, you'd be sick. It would be awful. Unfortunately, the family mistakenly believed that the police would not do anything about a missing person until they had been missing a full 24 hours. 
That doesn't apply to five-year-olds, does it? It doesn't. It is not the case with children. But that belief had them delay contacting the police until the next morning. No way. That is heartbreaking. It would be so hard to wait, thinking that you couldn't do anything about your missing child. Yeah, and we can't judge when this happens to a family, but it's just so heartbreaking because I can imagine that that would stay with them for a long time. Right. Please know that if your child is missing, you can call the police right away. Absolutely. It does get a little stickier for adults, though. Yeah, and adults I can see. But Mm -hmm. anyone in your care, absolutely call. Even if it is a grown child or someone else in your life that you know that they should be home and they're not, call anyways. Even if they tell you you have to wait the 24 hours, just call. Yeah, I agree. Just call. By the next morning, May 18th, Precious still had not been found. And the family just couldn't wait any longer. They had to contact the police. So they didn't wait the full 24 hours. The night was all they could wait. Oh, I'm sure they were up worried. Sick about it all night. Mm -hmm. The police investigation started right in Gladys's neighborhood, retracing Precious's known movements the night before. They started going door to door, and one of the first doors they knocked on was Eric's. It was not a big surprise since Eric lived only a few doors down. Oh my goodness. According to the canvassing officers, Eric answered the door in a quote, pink, long sleeve shirt and a pair of blue jeans, and he had like red glassy eyes a little bit and a slight odor of alcohol on him. Police took note that other than a Bowie knife on the counter and a vacuum cleaner sitting in the middle of the floor, the house was extraordinarily tidy. That's surprising. For a bachelor? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially one who has a substance abuse problem? Exactly. Eric told police that the two children had been in his yard to play on the swing set, and he told them that the two children had gone in the house to see the eels and the goldfish in his son's room. After playing on the swing set a little more... He told police that the two children went riding back to Michael's house, and that was the last time he saw them. Police would return once more to check Eric's storage sheds for the missing child, and he told them the same story about Precious and Michael playing on the swings, looking at his pets, and then heading home. At first, the police seemed to believe Eric's story and moved on to the next house to question. It wouldn't be until later that police would learn why the house had been so tidy. Oh no. What's so unfortunate about this, too, is his story would have matched what Michael's mom had said, that she had collected them from there, and she would have said that she saw Precious pedaling home, which would corroborate his story that, no, they were here, but they left. Right. And I think, too, just the added fact that he had a child of his own would have let people think that he was safe to be around children. Yeah, a false sense of security for sure. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in cases in past is when these criminals give some of the truth, it's easier to believe them because he wasn't saying, oh, no, I didn't see her. I don't know what kid you're talking about. I've never seen that kid in my life. He was like, no, she was here. She did come in the house and then they left, which could explain if they found anything of hers on the premises. Exactly. But while the police are searching, Precious's family are in agony waiting for any news on their five-year-old. The police's search efforts were futile, and Precious wouldn't be found until early afternoon on Sunday, the 19th of May. So this is a couple days later. It is. A local resident was fishing in Nahunta Creek and discovered Precious, her tiny body entangled in the bush, just seven miles from her home. She was less than one month from turning six. Oh my goodness. The kindergartner had her upper body wrapped in a trash bag with duct tape wrapped around her head so that her face and hair couldn't be seen. Duct tape had also been used to pull her legs up to her chest. Oh. Deputies responded within roughly 30 minutes of the resident's 911 call reporting the body and the scene was secured and an extensive search of the area began. I can't even imagine that. No. And just to treat her like a piece of garbage, just discarding her in the river. I hate when they use garbage bags. Yeah. I know. It makes it that much more vile. It does. Precious's little red and white bicycle was later identified and was recovered in the nearby creek. And a blue tarp rolled up with duct tape on one end was found in a nearby ditch. A passerby, drawn to the area by the search activity, learned that the body of the missing girl had been discovered there. He went to the sheriff's department to tell them what he had seen while driving in the area on Friday evening. 
The man reported that he had observed another man with a red scooter and a basket on the left side of the bridge, along with a raincoat or something wrapped in a clump with duct tape lying about 8 to 10 feet behind the scooter. He described the man as a small to medium-framed person wearing a blue jacket and lighter shade helmet. He reported seeing the man struggle with a large bundle wrapped in a blue tarp and with a small red and white bicycle. A total of five witnesses would testify at trial that they had seen a white male on a red scooter or a red moped with a black basket in the area of the Airport Road Bridge near Nahunta Creek between 7.15 and 7.45 on Friday night, about an hour after Precious was last seen at Eric's home. So he didn't even care who saw him. And so when that one onlooker saw him, he was already stopped at the creek? Yep. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that poor onlooker would have had no idea what he was actually witnessing. No, not at all. I'm sure he just thought that, oh, there's somebody dumping garbage. Yeah. Police, knowing that Eric matched this description and had a red scooter with a black basket, started to focus all their efforts on Eric. Yeah, there couldn't have been that many grown men driving around on a scooter at that time. No, it kind of gave them away. Eric was taken into the sheriff's department to be re-interviewed, but he kept to his original story. He said he hadn't seen Precious after she and Michael visited the house and had returned home for dinner. He agreed to allowing the police to search his house multiple times and even agreed to come into the station for questioning, claiming he had nothing to hide. That's pretty bold of him. He was pretty confident in his cleanup, obviously. He was very confident. And it would turn into a very ironic statement because the police didn't have to search very hard for evidence. Really? Nope. Good. Eric hadn't thought he had left any evidence behind, but he was so wrong. At approximately 10.45 p.m. on Sunday night, police conducted a two and a half hour search of Eric's residence. In Eric's storage sheds, deputies found a red scooter with a black basket and a white helmet. And that would be just the first of many pieces of evidence that police would find in Eric's residence. On further investigation, police found 14 hairs in the vacuum cleaner that was sitting on the living room floor, and they were consistent with Precious's hair, Oh, confirming that she was in Eric's home. But really, that wasn't a huge surprise because Eric had already told police that both Michael and Precious had come in to see the eels and the goldfish. Right. What was unusual, though, about these hairs was that all of them showed signs of being forcefully removed. Oh, they had the follicle at the end. Mm -hmm. Police also found that the trash bags in Eric's home were consistent with the size, composition, construction, texture, red drawstrings, and reinforcement characteristics of the trash bags in which Precious had been found wrapped in. Oh, wow. Other incriminating evidence came from the fibers of a blue tarp found on Eric's gloves and clothes his scooter, and a roll of duct tape that was taken from his home. They were all consistent with the tarp and the duct tape that were found near the location where Precious's body had been found. I love that science behind an investigation where you can know with certainty that this roll of duct tape in particular was used for this particular crime. Police were more than confident that they had their man. But even with all this evidence against him, Eric still denied having anything to do with Precious's murder. It wouldn't be until he voluntarily went in for questioning that the truth would come out. When he started to confess, what happened to Precious all came pouring out. On Tuesday morning, the 21st of May, Detectives Mike Calber and Tony Morris picked Eric up at his home for a prearranged appointment to give a statement to the State Bureau of Investigation at the Greenville office. So he agrees to go in with them. He's still thinking super confidently, even after they've found all of this evidence at his house. Just shows his arrogance. Or his stupidity. It's probably both. It probably is. It's always both. Special Agent Joseph Smith met with Eric and detected no impairments. But Eric had admitted to the two previous detectives that he had been drinking heavily the night before and was currently hungover and feeling sick. He also told them that he had a history of seizures. During the first part of the interrogation, Eric maintains that he doesn't know anything that happened to Precious. But through some pretty awesome maneuvering questions, Eric trips up and makes the statement he can't go back on. He says he had, quote, wrapped the youngin in duct tape. (gasps) That slipped out of his mouth? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm in shock. How does that just slip out of your mouth? Well, they just kept kind of circling around the same kind of questions about, oh, you said this. Well, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this happen? 
And they wow. just kept circling and circling. Good for them. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine how their hearts would have dropped hearing him say that? Well, I think they were more elated than dropped. They already knew he had killed her. That's and true. he had just admitted it. With no possible way to backtrack after that, Eric's version of the truth begins to flow. The following is from his signed confession. Oh, man. But keep in mind, this is Eric's version of events. Told by a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Quote, I, Eric Lang, came home from work Friday, May 17th, 2002, at about 3 p.m. or 3.30 p.m. I started drinking beer. Michael and Precious came over to my house at about 10 or 15 minutes after I got home. I had drank about three beers before they got there. They were riding bicycles. I was laying in the backyard in front of the swing. They asked if they could swing. I said yes. They asked me to push them on the swing, so I did. Precious asked for something to drink. I went into the house and got some. I got them some Pepsi. They came to the door and Precious stepped in the house. I told them to go look at the eels, which were in the living room. Then they went to my son's room to look at the goldfish. They stayed in the house about 10 minutes. Then they went back outside and played on the swing again. I went back out with them. About five minutes later, they left. I was still drinking. About 15 minutes later, Precious came back to the house riding a white and red bicycle. She asked if she could look at the eels again, so we went in the house. At first, I sat at the kitchen table while Precious played with some of my son's toys in his room. She played in his room for 10 to 15 minutes. I was still drinking beer. I got up and started feeding the eels, and she came into the living room with me. She was wearing jeans, shorts, or skirt. I don't remember what color her shirt was. She was wearing white tennis shoes. I think I was wearing tan shorts. I wasn't wearing a shirt. I was wearing my white cap with USA and the American flag on it. Oh my goodness. And he's drinking a lot of beer. He said he had three within 15 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, this is giving me chills just picturing just what's happening before he does the unthinkable. Right. He's just sitting there watching her play through his house. And she's just innocently thinking she's safe. Mm Mm-hmm. She's playing with another kid's toys. Having no idea what's to come. Right. And I think that as he's telling his version of events, he keeps repeating over and over again, and I was drinking beer, and I was drinking beer. And I drank this much and I drank this much because it's his excuse for what happens next. There is no excuse. No, none at all. You can take that beer and shove it. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, I started playing with her, tickling her. She fell on the floor laughing. The next thing I remember, I woke up on top of her. I pushed myself up with my hand, which was on her shoulder. She was unconscious. My shorts were down as well as my underwear. I pulled up her shorts and maybe her panties. They were not all the way down. I shook her trying to wake her up. I had my hands on her shoulders while shaking her. I started to walk around the house and tried to figure out what happened. And then I walked outside where I saw her bicycle. I put it in the white building. I walked around the building for 10 to 15 minutes trying to figure out what to do. I knew I had to get her out. So I grabbed a blue tarp in the white building and got a roll of duct tape out of the other building. I grabbed the trash bag out of the trash can because it was the only one I had. It was white with red handles. I wrapped her in the trash bag and then taped the bag around her. I put the tarp around her and wrapped her in the tarp. I drank for a minute. I got her and a couple of beers and went into the white building. I put her in the middle of my scooter, where you put your feet. My scooter is red. I hung the bicycle on the scooter basket and I left on the scooter. I went to the creek. I got to the creek and parked, and I got Precious and the bicycle off the scooter. The tarp came off of her when I was getting her off. I don't know what time it was, but it was getting dark, and that would have been where the witness saw him. Right. A car came, so I ran, and I threw the bicycle in the creek and hid under the bridge. I sat there and drank the two beers I had and threw the bottles in the creek. I laid the body at the edge of the water under the bridge where someone could find it. I grabbed the tarp and went to the scooter. I took the same path back home. The tarp blew off on the way back. I didn't stop to get it. I just went home. I I guess I raped her too, but I don't remember. I was wearing a white helmet when I took Precious to the creek. 
When I pulled out of my driveway, the body almost fell off the scooter. I stopped and pulled her back onto the scooter. I was wearing a red pullover shirt, a blue jacket, and tan shorts. The deputies have all the clothing that I was wearing except for the red shirt, which is still at the house. There was no blood on the floor of my house. I remember seeing a black SUV at the end of my driveway when I stopped to pull the tarp back onto the scooter. I remember when Precious and I were in the living room. I started tickling her. We were both on the floor. I tickled her between her legs and her private parts area. Her pants came down, and somehow my pants came down also. I don't remember actually having sex with her, but I'm pretty sure I did. I don't remember looking for signs that we had sex. I thought she was dead when I put the trash bag over her. She never moved, so I thought I had suffocated her with my body, or her neck twisted and she died. Melissa, what a vile pig. These things don't just somehow happen. Her underwear doesn't somehow fall down. She doesn't somehow get her neck twisted. Yeah, it just somehow happened. Oh, I don't know what happened. This despicable dirtbag had taken the life of a five-year-old and couldn't even remember why he had done so. And then he had the audacity to blame it on his drunken state and say, oh, I, I don't remember it. It just happened. Yeah. People who get drunk don't go around raping five-year-old little girls. There are millions of drunks that don't do this to innocent children. Yeah, I'm sorry, but you can take that excuse and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. Mm -hmm. There is something twisted and rotten to the core about this dirtbag. And just almost like he's a victim of this. Oh, I was tickling her. And then somehow I tickled her in between her legs where I shouldn't have. And then somehow her shorts were down. And then somehow my pants came down. What? Take a flying leap. Oh, they need to put this guy in gen pop and let them take care of him. What an atrocious human piece of garbage. If he had any redeeming qualities, it was this. He had a sense of remorse about the crimes that he had committed and the life that he took. During the interview, Eric expressed shame and remorse by making statements such as, I'm sick. I'm a sick person. I wish I was dead. And I'm a rapist and a killer. I wish I was dead. And I just have to say, I am sure there are several others that wish the same thing. Yeah, I'm sure Precious's family wish that. And what is so frustrating with this is he's admitting, I'm a rapist. Well, we knew that way back when, when he raped his ex-wife. He should have been put in jail then. He should not have even had the opportunity to harm this child. Right. And that's where I feel like some of that is shame on the court system as well. Indirectly or not, their actions helped to produce this consequence. It's just so sad when you think that it could have been prevented. Right. When you only spend 15 days in jail for rape. Right. But I want you to remember those statements of remorse when his appeals come around. Yeah, I'm not feeling it right now. Eric Glenn Lane, at the age of 30, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, first-degree sex events, and lewd and lavicious conduct in the death of Precious Whitfield. He was taken to Raleigh Central Prison for his own protection, which just makes me cringe. He should have no protection. Yeah, agreed. Why do we protect these types of individuals? I don't know. But during each courtroom appearance, the courtroom was heavily secured because there was so much hatred towards him. Oh, yeah. A case like this helps to give me some understanding as to why in the olden days they had public hangings on the street. Not that I would normally endorse that or say, yeah, that's great. But you can see in situations like this how the people in that community would want to see that justice being served. Absolutely. You can see it. And the death of a child, I think, always brings out that increase in emotion. Yeah, because they're innocent and they cannot protect themselves. Right. A five-year-old little girl versus a 30-year-old grown man, there's not even a question as to who's going to overpower who. And that's why I think I get so angry when I hear about his protection. She had no protection from him. And yet they're affording him protection from other adults. Yeah, they're giving him a grace that he did not give to her. Right. The court proceedings would have a lot of stops and starts in this case. The first postponement came because Eric needed to have a competency hearing. Prior to the trial, Eric was admitted to Dorothea Dix Hospital on the 5th of May 2004 for three months to determine if he was competent to stand trial. His appointed lawyers were arguing that Eric suffered from neurological deficits that contributed to him committing a crime. So are they talking about his low education level? 
Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry, but lack of education does not turn you into a child rapist and murderer, in my opinion. It's just so mind-boggling. Ironically, at the same time, Eric was trying to convince a judge that he was competent enough to represent himself in court. Oh, so I'm so uneducated that I'm going to rape and murder people, but I'm smart enough to represent myself. Right. You don't get both, buddy. This is the one case where it's not both. Yeah. Eric was not happy, though, with the way his lawyers were representing him, but he withdrew his petition when the judge ordered him to stay longer at the hospital for further evaluation. (laughs) Eric would go on to pursue representing himself again and eventually be allowed to do so. Yeah, I'd be like, sure, because I would want to see him tank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do it all you want. Right. Because we want you to go to jail. We don't want you to have fair representation. But the reason why the judge denied it in the first place is because he didn't feel he was competent to represent himself and he didn't want a mistrial declared. That's true. He obviously is not competent. I'm just really outraged right now because of what I've just learned that he did. Mm -hmm. The evaluations done at this time would show that Eric suffered from anxiety disorders, probably post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental symptoms yet to be fully diagnosed at the time. But none of this meant that he was not competent to stand trial. His original trial once underway had to be stopped on November 9th because of a juror misconduct and the judge had to order a mistrial. No way. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the jury member did? They got caught talking about the trial outside of the courtroom. Oh. Mm -hmm. Another roadblock happened in May 2005 during the selection of Eric's second trial. When the judge granted Eric's motion to start over the whole process. Right from the start. Mm -hmm. Because he had some concerns about the jurors. When the trial finally got underway and began again on June 1st, 2005, it was difficult to endure for everyone involved. Of course, for Precious's parents, Michelle and Anthony, and for her extended family that gathered to see justice take place but also for the officers that had worked on the case and the jury members that were subjected to the vast volume of detailed evidence. I'm not sure we ever fully understand the double-edged sword that a trial by jury is. Of course you want dirtbags like Eric to be brought to justice for the despicable things they do, and there can be peace from finding out the truth. But during a trial, the events of the crime have to be relived in minute detail. For the family and the first responders, they were put right back into those terrifying moments of Precious's disappearance and the heartbreaking, horrific discovery of her body. For people years later that were trying to heal, it was like tearing open a wound again. And for the jury, it creates a fresh wound of sights and information that they will never be able to unsee or forget. And this happened for two such jurors in this case. That's so sad. And what a heavy burden to have to carry. Mm -hmm. Often the men and women that serve on the jury are not prepared for the disturbing and emotional experience that jury duty is. It is a crucial role in most judicial systems around the world, and one that is not often regarded as being part of the far-reaching effects of a dirtbag's actions. That's true. We kind of forget about those jury members, don't we? I have heard that some places will actually offer counseling to their jury members for horrific crimes like this. And this one would have needed it. The defense argued that Eric had blacked out and was unaware of his actions. They even threw out the theory that Eric was incapacitated by his drinking that night, and it was possible that someone else had committed the crime in his house. What? Mm -hmm. They argued that when he came to, he was left to deal with cleaning up someone else's crime. And because he was so confused by his drunken state, about what had occurred, that's why he confessed. It wasn't me, it was the one-armed man. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So someone else breaks in, and you're aware enough that you were on the floor tickling her, but then all of a sudden, someone breaks in, you have no memory of that, they pull your pants down, and then proceed to do these horrific things to little Precious, and then you come too, and you're totally innocent. But your good law-abiding citizen self feels that you should throw her in a river instead of calling the police if you truly believe someone else had done this. Right. It doesn't make any sense. But remember, the defense just has to introduce reasonable doubt. And so they presented the theory that it was possible that somebody else had snuck in while Eric was passed out. 
No. Nobody pulled your pants down and forced you to rape that little girl. No. Sorry, that did not happen. I have zero doubt. Well, the prosecution disproved this theory with the fact that just two hours after Precious died, Eric had been aware and orientated enough to call his father that night at 8.32 in the evening. Police believe that this was after he had disposed of Precious's body at the creek. He had worked very quickly for someone so inebriated that he blacked out. Yeah, no kidding. Because even from the time that she showed up at his door to when witnesses saw him at the creek, that was not a very long period of time. Oh, it wasn't a long period of time at all. They think about a half an hour. That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. The most horrific evidence in the trial came from Precious's autopsy. The autopsy showed that Precious had suffered blunt force trauma. She had several bruises and lacerations, and worst of all, there was evidence of sexual assault. The inseam between the two legs of the little girl's shorts and underwear had been jaggedly cut and had blood on them. They had been cut off, not just pulled down? Yes. Oh. Remember the knife sitting on the counter? Yeah. Yeah. That's a far stretch from, oh, they somehow magically came down. He forcefully cut them. Because she was probably struggling against them. Right. There was no usable fragments of semen to recover DNA at the time of the trial, but hairs were recovered from her rectum that matched the mitochondrial DNA of Eric or someone on his mother's side of the family. The official cause of her death was asphyxia secondary to suffocation. The medical examiner concluded that Precious had been alive when she was put in the trash bag and died in part because she had vomited while struggling against the tape that had been placed around her head and had breathed in some of the vomit back into her lungs. <gasps> no way. Mm -hmm. So he would have known she was alive. Yeah. During the trial, the prosecution went into great detail describing how Precious was still alive and fighting back when she was put into the trash bag. That's horrific. Uh-huh. Michelle, Precious's mother, said about the autopsy findings, quote, It was hard for me to hear that she did fight, that she did try, and she is a fighter. It was hard for me to hear that she was still alive at the time that he did all this stuff to her. I don't know how you would recover as a mom finding that out, because that is total suffering that she had to go through. Yeah, I cannot even begin to imagine what it would have been like to hear that about my own daughter. No. On July 8th, 2005, after less than four hours of deliberation, a jury found Eric Lane guilty for the 2002 kidnapping, rape, and murder of five-year-old Precious Whitfield. The only charge that he was not found guilty of was lewd and levitious conduct. For the sentence hearing, Eric chose to go against legal advice and represent himself. He declined to offer any evidence of statements on his own behalf. His silence did not go over well with the jury, and they recommended the trial court impose the death penalty in less than an hour of starting their deliberations. Good. Eric was also sentenced to serve an additional term, totaling 809 to 1,010 months for his other convictions. Good. Immediately following the sentence, a motion of appeal was filed based on the grounds that Eric was not competent to represent himself. Give me a break. So he had two lawyers with him. He was representing himself, but he did have two lawyers there available. And as soon as the sentence was proclaimed, they immediately filed an appeal saying he wasn't competent to represent himself. So it was almost like, let him have this practice trial and then we can see what we can fix the second time around. Right. We all know math's not my favorite. So how many years is a thousand months? She doesn't like the math thing, math. No, <laughs> I don't like to math. <laughs> It's my least favorite thing. It's like 67 to like 85 years. Wow. Of additional court time on top of his death sentence. Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Good job, jury. Now, please tell me that his appeal gets denied. Well, again, they had to test his competency. Oh, that happened in June 2009. But he was found competent to make the decision to not put up a defense, and the appeal was denied. Good. Eric would file several more appeals and re-examine evidence to try and prove his theory that someone else had murdered Precious when he passed out. And he didn't have any kind of supporting evidence as to, like, DNA or fingerprints or anything else that was found in his home that would have even 
remotely supported the idea that someone else was in there. Not at all. But in 2015, he was granted the right to retest the DNA evidence of his case with newer technology available to recover DNA from smaller samples. Because remember, they had found semen, but they weren't able to test it because it was just small fragments. In the new testing, the results showed that the semen that was undetectable in 2002 was a mitochondrial match for Eric or a maternal relative. Of course it was. Mm -hmm. This finding led to his future appeals for retesting other pieces of evidence being denied. Yeah, no kidding. He's literally shooting himself in the foot, and I'm happy to see that happen. Mm -hmm. He just proved that it was him. And that just goes to show what is going on in his mind. He knew dang well that that was his semen. Did he really think it was going to come back as somebody else's? Just as magically as his pants had dropped? I don't know if he had just really bought into the whole story that his defense team was trying to create. And that, yeah, somebody else was there. It couldn't have been me. So let's run with this. So you think he was actually believing that? Or it was just a last ditch effort. I mean, what has he got to lose? He's already on death row. Yeah, with 87 years tacked on. Exactly. But still, that's just, I feel like, putting the final nail in your coffin. Right, but he's not going to get a longer sentence. Oh, that's true. So he's like, oh, I'll shoot my shot. Why not? Exactly. Eric was held in central prison in Raleigh to await his death sentence. In North Carolina, it usually takes about 10 years to exhaust all appeals and to carry out and deliver a sentence of death. Eric's appeals took longer than most, and he died of natural causes at the age of 51 on December 29, 2022, still awaiting his execution date. That always stings a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels like justice wasn't carried out. Mm -hmm. He didn't serve his sentence. His sentence was death. Right. And he got to have the privilege of dying naturally when Precious didn't. Right. And that's what seems unjust about it. Mm -hmm. He spent... 20 more years on this earth than she did. Right. And he didn't have to feel that fear or that angst walking into whatever type of execution it would have been. He didn't have to have that stressful last few moments of his life like Precious did. Knowing that it was going to be your last few moments. Wondering, is it going to hurt? What's it going to be like? Having all those natural concerns that you would knowing that you're going to be put to death. Right. It does seem like society and Precious's family were ripped off. Yeah, it's not fair. It doesn't seem that way. But that is the case of the despicable and disgusting dirtbag whose crime was so atrocious it was beyond comprehension, Eric Glenn Lane. He is disgusting. I just can't even imagine that poor baby, what her last moments on earth were like. No, I can't at all. And every time I research one of these cases, I'm always moved by the amount of repercussions one dirtbag's actions have. Reading about how her family had to endure the search for her and then the trial for her was just heartbreaking. And then one of the comments made by Precious's grandfather was about Eric's parents and how they had to sit through that trial and just a recognition of the pain that they went through. Her grandfather, John Whitfield, actually said, that he harbored no ill will towards Eric's father or his stepmother, Pete and Joan. He said, quote, I say to his parents, God bless you. You did what you could. You raised him the best you could. Wow. What an incredible human being. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. we've said it before. It's not just the victim's family that suffer in a case like this. It can be the loved ones of the dirt pig as well that have to face this horrific thing that their child or loved one has done. Right. I cannot even imagine. If one of my children had done something like this. No. And then you think about the community at large. After Precious's death, students from her school made cards that they then hung on the Whitfield family's door. Oh my goodness. How do you even explain to another five-year-old child what happened to their friend? No, I can't imagine. We live in a small town and something like that would just crush our community. It would. If you knew the little girl or not. And so I'm always amazed. It's never just the victim or just their family. There yeah. are so many repercussions that a dirtbag's actions have. Absolutely. Well, Melissa, that case definitely did warrant a trigger warning. So I'm glad you gave that at the beginning. It's really hard to talk about these cases, but I feel like these victims and their families, their stories need to be heard. 
Absolutely. And that's why we'll be back again next week with a different kind of evil for Christy's case. Yeah, my case is totally different than this one and unique from anything that we've ever covered before. So we hope you'll join us next time. Until then, see ya. Bye. Bring it this time. <laughs> Consider it brought. <laughs> For the felony, felonious, felonious. Like, don't say the other word. Felonious. Felonious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I hope he hit a rock and fell off that scooter and scraped up his elbows and knees. Actually, don't put that in there. It was Friday and he was going to enjoy the sun, su- the sunshine. Dirt bags. No, I shouldn't say that. Does that mean we're easy? (laughs) (laughs) Now I gotta bring this all back. Yeah, sorry. You maybe want to cut that out. And I can see why. And part of the part of the misfortunate part, and how do I say this? Like, don't put this in here. But do I call people too many names? But he is a piece of garbage. It is a crucial role in most judicial judicial. It is a crucial mole. Mole. <laughs> a mole in the judicial system. I'm not going to click anymore. I forgot I had a touch screen. All this time? I know. All this time you had a <laughs> touch screen? And you've been click, 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 click. I can't click. talk right now because I have to click. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we learn something new every day. I've always known I had a touch screen. I just don't know why I didn't apply it to this situation. Okay. Does that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.